Um, I think as far as the usage goes, I think the thing with A Thousand Plateaus and Anti-Oedipus is that um, A Thousand Plateaus lends itself much more for application or for as a model to do your own thing and Anti-Oedipus is a bit like it's it's laying foundations for Anti-Oedipus of, uh, for A Thousand Plateaus if I understand it correctly but it isn't it doesn't really offer much for application to other things than what it actually does itself all right well i think i'm gonna go ahead and start uh, moving us into today's reading uh as always thank everyone for joining we are going to be getting through chapter three section six the barbarian despotic machine uh today uh, today I'm going to be doing a secondary recording. I'm trying to do a, a, a reading through uh, uh, the video chat. So we'll be uh, videotaping everything that's happening inside of the chat and getting that up on YouTube, uh, trying that once again. So YouTubers out there, hopefully a handful of you will give us feedback and tell us what else you want. Um, let's see, any uh, housekeeping? Uh, we are... Uh, as always, looking for more volunteers, we've got uh, uh, a lot of people who have gone back to school, a lot of people who are able to be less involved thanks to work, all kinds of things happening on the server. We always need to help and support in a million different ways, whether it's, uh, you know, doing art articles, all kinds of fun stuff for the zine, uh, just general moderation, running reading groups. If you have any desire to run a reading group, do a reading group, you have a secondary book you want to read, feel free to join up on the server, join up in the volunteer chat and tell us uh, what you would like to do. We are here to support as always. Um, I think uh, any other big news this week, Kent, Jack, anyone else on any other readings that are happening? Yeah. Um, from the quarantine literature group, um, I actually forgot to put the poll in, but I, I think just based on precedent, um, we're probably just going to end up going with uh, finishing the birth of tragedy, which means reading uh, chapters 15 to 25, I think it is, for this coming Sunday at noon p.m., at noon PDT, rather. And I think Simon Dunn will be continuing at 11 a.m. PDT. Yeah, we may not have Kent. That's okay. Uh, I know we've got a bunch of other uh, readings happening for Heidegger and the others, so uh, feel free, again, uh, join in, uh, check in, and we'll get it going. Okay, and also oh. uh, on the other server, uh, on Continental Philosophy, uh, we would like to uh, establish on Saturday a reading group for Schelling's late philosophy, uh, his positive philosophy, and especially his philosophy of mythology. It's all in the planning uh, at the moment, but we try to... Um, yeah, read him every day. Uh, no, not every day, every Saturday on uh, 10 a.m. PDT. Excellent. That would be a good one. Um, and let me think. Uh, for this specific reading, I should mention also for anyone who does join us live, we are looking at what it takes for us to move this uh, to a time that works for a lot more people. As you notice, we've had a, a drop off in how many people are able to join the live readings. And I've been getting a ton of messages asking me to move it earlier, move it later, move it anytime other than noon. 
uh, because noon really is only good for me on the West Coast, and I think a few of us here. Uh, so we've we're, we may be moving the talks uh, another uh, hour earlier in the day, maybe two. Probably won't be going three, but that looks like what we're going to be doing. I'll be putting out another few polls. Be watching for those. Uh, and I think uh, that's about it for today for the announcements. So let's dive into the reading. Barbarian Despotic Machine. I'll go ahead and uh, give us a start and uh, we will charge ahead. The founding of the Despotic Machine or the Barbarian Socius can be summarized in the following way. A new alliance and direct filiation. The despot challenges the lateral alliances and the extended filiations of the old community. He imposes a new alliance system and places himself in direct filiation with the deity. The people must follow. A leap into a new alliance, a break with the ancient filiation. This is expressed in a strange machine, or rather, a machine of the strange, whose locus is the desert, imposing the harshest and the most barren of ordeals, and attesting to the resistance of an old order as well as to the validation of the new order. The machine of the strange is both a great paranoiac machine, since it expresses the struggle with the old system, and already a glorious celibate machine, insofar as it exalts the triumph of the new alliance. The despot is the paranoiac. There is no longer any reason to forego such a statement. Once one has freed oneself from the characteristic familialism of the concept of paranoia in psychoanalysis and psychiatry, and provided one sees in paranoia a type of investment in a social formation. And new perverse groups spread the despot's invention. Perhaps they even fabricated it for him. Broadcast his fame and impose his power in the towns they found or conquer. Wherever a despot and his army pass, doctors, priests, scribes, and officials are part of the procession. It might be said that the ancient complementarity has shifted to form a new socius. No longer the bush paranoiac and the encampment or village perverts, but the desert paranoiac and the town perverts. One thing I kind of got out of this section, particularly this paragraph, is the sense that the earth is going from um, sort of lush, if you will, or at least green to aesthetic, right? To um, to desert-like. So it's going sort of barren now with the despot um, seemingly at least, perhaps not the center, but the nucleus of it. I think that absolutely places himself at the center. And the last handful of chapters have been really focused on how uh, affiliation and our past debt to the sort of ever recurring family line backwards to where everything started mythology wise. Uh, to this, it's the deity uh, truncates that ultimately and becomes the affiliation line directly to the deity, the god, and everyone must. Uh, take credit and and are, is indebted ultimately to him instead of this long-standing filiation back. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. The only reason I hesitate to say the center is because, um, and this actually this section clarified it for me more too, is the the role of his um perverts, right? So like uh, the example is going to be given of like Jesus has his Saint John, right? So, like, that started to click with me better, that it's not just the despot, right? It's the people who who use the despot, um, whether it's perverse or perverting, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that line in this paragraph is supposed to be a, a joke. 
the new perverse group spread the despot's inventions. Perhaps they even fabricated it for him, right? Because that's paranoia. That's a joke about paranoia. Because uh, you go around thinking that everyone is doing something, that there's like secret meaning that only you can see in what everyone else is doing, right? It's a joke. Get it? Haha. -ha. Right? Because perhaps they really are doing that. Could I ask a question about the paranoiac machine? Yes. <laughs> I I just wanted to understand that sentence just because I'm I'm refreshing since it's been a while for me. When he's saying about freeing oneself from the familiarism of the concept of paranoia and seeing an investment of social formation, this is just basically the sort of the original point that about the paranoiac machines, just even with the, the in the body without organs, right? That the reason that they want to look at the despot, I don't know if they're considered uh, the full body or not. I was getting confused with the body of the earth stuff, but that there's particular characteristics of paranoiac machines that they want to align with the despot that have nothing to do with the Oedipal triangle. Is that right? That, that's what I'm getting from it. Um, I think someone with more psycho psychoanalysis background could like talk about what particularly the role of the family is in paranoia. But I think that what they're getting at in this section is like, there's a sort of, that reinvestment of the codes, right? Where the, the despot is the paranoiac because he's going to come to the front of the society, right? In one of those uh, genealogical ruptures, he's going to come to the front of the society and make everything about him. Right. And that's, that's why he's a paranoiac. Right. And, and, and it's not like that everyone's going to attack him. It's that he is the one with that secret sort of affiliation to the deity this sort of access truth in a new way, right? The overcoding thing. And uh, that that process obviously has nothing to do with the family and it's sort of a political process. I wouldn't say despot is body without organs. I would say that the despot is overcoding, is, is overcoding the old codes of society as that everything kind of has to do with him. It's necessary, absolutely, we separate body without organs from the socius. We're talking about the socius here. The body without organs uh, stands very separate from that. Uh, uh, and we could... They, I believe at one point they even say that uh, paranoiac machines are trying to break into the body without organs. So uh, I think that's the phrasing they use very specifically. So they're they're not so much a repulsive force on the body without organs, but uh, to just dive into, and again, I don't have the Freudian background in how he treats paranoiacs. I've only read Lacan, and I, I'm pretty dumb when it comes to Lacan. So uh, to me... It, how I read paranoiacs is uh, a paranoiac is someone who uh, has understood that they don't know things and they, de they demand that knowledge, that, that desire for understanding everything, even though they have the impotence of not. That's sort of where paranoia comes from as a concept in the paranoiac machine is the machine desiring to break into the body without organs to understand where all debt is placed and how everything works at a basic level. And you can't because that's not how it works. And so the despot being the paranoiac machine is uh, the idea that this, they, they've basically been told by and tell everyone that they are one step away from God. They are under God. They they know everything. They control everything, but they absolutely don't. And so, by nature, they're a parent paranoiac machine. Is how I read that sort of coming about. Yeah, and that was so confusing for me for a long time because I kept reading it like it was like paranoid, like as in you know, 
uh, like, oh, people are out to get me, right? Like, as, as if the despot was sort of if this, like, persecutory thing, which obviously that's possible, but it's not really the main feature. Yeah, it's a part of the paranoiac sort of setup is that they understand that they don't know things, but they... Uh, the, the the idea of paranoia as we know it, where someone's, you know, got all these conspiracy theories and QAnon is around every corner and Trump is bringing down the network of pedophiles and all this, this this sort of natural assumption around knowledge. It, it actually stems from a terrifying fear that they don't understand the world and that the world doesn't make sense and that they can't gather it. And that's where paranoia uh, at a basic level is, is that sort of impotence around not knowing. I'll find a section on this real quick, actually. It's probably worth us spending a moment on because they go into paranoiac machines uh, throughout this and desiring machines and how they sort of interact in the despot uh, setup. So if someone would like to read uh, this next section or maybe we have more to talk about here, I'd perfectly fine with that. Yeah, It'll be a moment. I would like to ask if um, they are talking about the founding of the despotic machine as a leap into a new alliance, a break within the ancient filiation. This is expressed in a strange machine or rather in a machine of the strange. This machine of the strange, is it like a middle stage between the old and the new system, like a, a, liminal, a liminal field or sphere uh, where there isn't really the old system anymore, but not the new system yet or uh, maybe they get into this in the next paragraphs i sort of took it like not so much uh, I, I hate to say liminal here but i i took it more like it is um it is it is doing the work right so it's not liminal as in you're going to end up in the post liminal um it, it's Hmm. How to say? I guess I took it as like it's the machine of the strange takes what's there and makes it strange, right? And in that way, it's taking you simultaneously into the new alliance and into the um, the sort of divine filiative or like the despot filiative. It's like when they say machine of the strange, it sounds to me like the way that this kind of makes a desert is by sort of um, responding to the, the, the primitive society and taking that memory and all that and now starting to like overcode it or even like overlay upon it. And in that way, it's, I hate to say liminal because then, then we're going to be like, okay, but when do we get to the post-liminal? It's, it's we're actively in the process, right? We're actively in the territorializing process. Would someone like to read the next uh, paragraph? I'll volunteer. Go for it. In theory, the despotic barbarian formation has to be conceived of in terms of an opposition between it and the primitive territorial machine, the birth of an empire. But in reality, one can perceive the movement of this formation just as well when one empire breaks away from a preceding empire, or even when there arises the dream of a spiritual empire wherever temporal empires fall into decadence. <clears throat> it may be that the enterprise is primarily military and motivated by conquest, or that it is primarily religious, the military discipline being converted into the internal aestheticism and cohesion. 
It may be that the paranoiac himself is either a gentle creature or a raging beast. But we always rediscover the figures of this paranoiac and his perverts, the conqueror and his elite troops, the despot and his bureaucrats, the holy man and his disciples, the anchorite and his monks, Christ and his St. Paul. Moses flees from the Egyptian machine into the wilderness and installs his new machine there, a holy ark and a portable temple, and gives his people a new religious military organization. In order to summarize St. John, the Baptist's enterprise, one author declares, quote, John attacks at its foundation the central doctrine of Judaism, the doctrine of the alliance with God through affiliation that goes back to Abraham. End quote. There is the essential. Every time the categories of new alliance and direct affiliation are mobilized, we are talking about the imperial barbarian formation or the despotic machine. And this holds true whatever the context of this mobilization, whether in a relationship with preceding empires or not, since throughout these vicissitudes, the imperial formation is always defined by a certain type of code and inscription that is in direct opposition to the primitive territorial codings. The number of elements in the alliance makes little difference. New alliance and direct affiliation are specific categories that testify to the existence of a new socius, irreducible to the lateral alliances and the extended affiliations that declined the primitive machine. It is this force of projection that defines paranoia. This strength to start again from zero, to objectify a complete transformation, the subject leaps out the intersections of alliance affiliation, installs himself at the limit, at the horizon, in the desert, the subject of a deterritorialized knowledge that links him directly to God and connects him to the people. For the first time, something has been withdrawn from life and from earth that will make it possible to judge life and to survey the earth from above, a first principle of paranoiac knowledge. The whole relative play of alliances and affiliations is carried to the absolute in this new alliance and this direct affiliation. All right, there is quite a bit actually for us to break down inside of this one. Um, I want to read through very quickly before we do uh, Holland, uh, his little section, just a quick paragraph from him on despotism and the imperial inscription, uh, because it's, I think, very applicable to this specific paragraph, but goes on. Uh, what is distinctive about this system of inscription is that the independence of voice and graphics characteristic of savagery disappears. Writing now aligns itself on the voice, but on a voice that is crucially absent, as Derrida has shown is true for all writing. The imperial domain is too large to be governed in person, so the state administers by written decree. The one subsystem of inscription has now become the signifier of the other. Writing moves into a position of visible dominance in practice, yet becomes subordinate to the absent voice it merely represents. Deleuze and Guattari thus call imperial inscription a system of subordination to distinguish it from the savage connotation. Two important consequences follow, and he goes through them. Uh, 
and we, we will actually get into the rest of that uh, in the in the upcoming paragraphs. But uh, the specific section when he's talking about the move and the switch uh, to the despot uh, and the way the filiation works, I think uh, he's speaking to there. You're fine. We're just trying to piece through this stuff because it's dense. It, it, it is extremely dense. Uh, so do we want to let's take off uh, part of it then and we'll just break it down because it's it is a lot. Uh, the, the part I'd like to focus on in the early part of the paragraph is when they talk about uh, the paranoiac himself may be a gentle creature or raising beast, but we always rediscover the figures of this paranoiac and his pervert, the conquerors and his elite troops. Uh, and then they go through a handful of examples uh, of that. Why? So are they saying that there's something about when in, in the transition between social systems that reveals the working of this so-called, you know, this shift from so-called primitive territorial modes and the despotic mode, even even when the previous mode might have been another despotic mode, presumably. Because if you're talking about the times of, of Jewish religion and the rise of Christ, I mean, there's like a whole, you know, theological state that pre-exists Christ. So it's not like they're coming from, you know, some kind of state of nature. I think um, I, I, I'm thinking of it in terms of those genealogical jumps, right? Uh, we did like a rereading of, of uh, genealogy of morals essays, uh, essay number two, and they're going to quote it in like a minute. But like that whole quote where like they come like fake, they appear as lightning appears too terrible, too sudden. It's their like way of theorizing these transitions isn't that they transition slowly or gradually or even really have anything to do with actual states. It's more about jumps in like thought the way that one way of thinking about society jumps to another way of thinking about it. And that, that studying those jumps and the way they're connected is illuminating. Yeah. I think part of the trick is like the word empire, right. And this, this role of like um, sort of a chosen person and their followers. Right. That's why I think like it's, it's not just the despot, right. It's the people like the aristocrats or those who organize around the despot. Um, so like to that point, if you look at like Jesus, if you want to use Christianity and Judaism, it might be that we can take Judaism at some level to be um, something like a primitive society here. And what, what uh, the figure of Jesus does, right, is he's the son of God. So you can already see like this could be a despot machine, right? Because you've got, um, a spiritual empire coming into being with a chosen person, right? With somebody like, you know, like a like Ilya Gabalus, right? The son of God. And so with that, the first thing Jesus, well, one of the first things he does is set up 12 followers who carry out its teachings, right? And he gives them authority. So you can see that part of what is critical here is like with a more central authority of the formalized state, through the despot, you get the transference of power and this this further um, development of a network of power, which is going to lead, I think, to this new alliance and to the need for a more direct filiation. The only thing I would say in response to that is that, and I know we don't always want to get lost in details when, you know, just like, you know, people critique Foucault for historical mistakes and stuff like that, when we're, we're kind of talking more about the ideas. But even what they're saying, I mean, they did say between two empires. And I think that the problem with the whole example you gave is that 
not even aesthetically calling Judaism a, a primitive society, which I don't think it was. It's just like for us to follow this metaphor or this line of argument, if for it to make sense, like that example that they give, I'm sure that the, the irony is not lost on that. This was like a sort of mini state that existed. It wasn't, you know, Judaism wasn't, was a very organized thing with a high priest, you know, uh, administered by the selected by the Romans and all this kind of stuff. So the idea of it as anything other than another a similar kind of m- machine or whatever, you know, like I don't want to get lost in this. I'm just saying to me, it almost points to the opposite thing of what they're saying, that this is possible even in between two things that you would think like it's not linear as um i forget who was just saying it before that it's necessarily chronological that it can happen between two presumably advanced socialists that are going through a huge upheaval well and i don't see them as necessarily saying that uh, it's a leap it's one of those things that uh and i, I know there's a lot of different views on on how they interpret this, but to me, it's uh, the very small contingent events that push things into being moved. And when we're talking about the, the well, we see the difference between empire and primitive as these drastically different things. They're saying, actually, no, it's it's a matter of how you trace your affiliation to other people uh, in the primitive worlds. You'd sit around and you'd say, hey, that's Steve. Steve and I, we have these cousins in common because our, our aunt, great aunts got married and 90 years ago and we couldn't I can trace that back forever that's why we as a small cohesive group uh, sociologists may call monkey circles are able to function and we're able to work and so in the primitive tribes we can move around but we're one cohesive group to ourselves uh, what they're talking about is the trend for that switch where it's no longer I know Steve because of this you know complex familial relations but instead I know Steve because we both report to John and John is God's son on earth and because of that, we can actually deal with uh, almost much larger monkey circles because as they talk about the perverts that move around and work on his behalf or our lords or priests or whatever it may, may be are speaking on his behalf. And that's the necessity of words sort of translating from being uh, we're now talking about words from the despot from God, uh, rather than just words being sort of connected to themselves, uh, sort of in, in a thing. And so that that switch may feel large to us, but it feels like what they're talking about here is actually, no, it's the matter of uh, Moses flees from the Egyptian machine into the wilderness and installs his new machine there, a holy ark and a portable temple, and gives his people a new religious military organization. These, these contingent events happen around this, but it's not a, a, a grand divorced world. There's a lot of small things that go into it, is how I read this yeah definitely there are these uh contingent changes uh, and small events that add up or something like that like that or can even uh change nothing if they are not strong enough to formulate it this way but um is it like there are bifurcation points or turning points where one system turns into another and my question would be um comes the desperate before these bifurcation points or does he come after it like he uh, um, takes the place of uh, the desperate before like uh, maybe in a gentle way or in a raging way but uh, is the despot the one who crushes the former system or the one who uh, takes it after its breakdown or it's crumbling 
or or is he someone who almost takes advantage of the former system of affiliations? Uh, because if it weren't the case that the thing he was coming from is um, my ability to trace my origin back thousands of years through family, which is an invented thing that's not real, uh, and my mythology of my family exists, and I'm able to trace that back. If I wasn't coming from that, could I even say that I was, you know, descendant from God, which is the Egyptian machine they they put here? Uh, so it's it's almost like a despot who comes along and takes advantage of the fact that hey, I'm able to trace my my affiliation back. Oh, yours goes back to Steve. Mine goes to fucking God, and like. I, I win is almost like that's that's kind of how I read when he's talking about one can perceive the movement of this formation just as well when one empire breaks away from proceeding or when there arises the dream of a spiritual empire wherever temporal empires fall into decadence. Um, that's the the switch uh, because they talk about in the previous chapter, the machine of the strange is both a great paranoiac machine since it expresses the struggle with the old system and already a glorious celibate machine insofar as it exalts the triumph of the new alliance. So it's that moment when the machine is, is taking advantage of the previous uh, because it's able to go, oh, this old system, uh, the affiliations, here's how my family's been forward. And because I come from God, everything I do, therefore, is blessed by God. And therefore, if you're part of my world, everything you do is blessed by God. How great would that be for you? Oh, okay. That's that's how I read that section, because the celibate machine, as we talked about earlier, is very focused on uh, finding those moments of jouissance, if you want to say that, to steal the French word that I probably am mispronouncing. But I'm rambling now. Please, someone else jump in, because this is hardly... This is hardly me saying uh, this is right. This is just how I've been reading this because it's uh, I'm coming at it having already read a whole bunch of Delanda and other shit that I think is probably <laughs> influencing pretty significantly my reading of. Is Celibate this. Machine not also about ending connections? Am I wrong about that? Mm. Give me a moment. I remember correctly the celibate machine is about um, transferring the, the so right like libidinal energy goes into the, the numinous and it goes into voluptus right the third synthesis of consumption and therefore consumption and consummation so I, I think of it in terms of like the example of Kafka's penal, call, penal calling they give where I don't know if it's about I don't know if it's about ending connections but it's definitely about consumption and like um in some ways right subjectivity more directly because that's the the subject um interfacing with the body without organs and like um going through the zones of intensities and, and experiencing things like the paleogabalus effect so so if the consummation is sort of occupying that 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 paleo uh, I can't pronounce his name, but you're occupying the coordinates that make you helio globalis. Uh, that's the consummation. Is the celibate machine the the sort of machine that makes that process possible? Because I think Eloish is right that celibate and consummation do kind of have opposite meanings, and I'm trying to square like how how they can be uh, two different parts of sort of the same process. That's that's what I remember too, Jackie, is that it has to do with that sort of 
occupying the the, the coordinates of whatever uh, type of subjectivity. Yeah, I mean the the celibate machine. I I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I would say like the celibate machine is the one that's working with the point sign as opposed to the signifier, right? And so, like in the, in that sense, the if I remember correctly, the celibate machine is like an ancient paranoia. Not like the celibate machine is an ancient paranoiac machine. So I remember correctly, it's it's. I don't want to say it's inscribing, but it's it's like when you have that moment of so that's what it was or that's what it is. That's the um, celibate machine, um, and and the recognition of the the effect that one was um, experiencing, right? Like where they give the example of Columbus simulating a whore. I have a wonderful piece I'm reading through right now. I'm going to copy and paste the necessary section. I'll, I'll link to this in a moment. Uh, but just to read it aloud, on first pat D- pass, DNG posit three machines, paranoiac, miraculating, and celibate. The first produces partial objects. The second, resonance between these objects. The third, the celibate machine interrupts reproduction, produces pure intensities, and opens onto a new humanity and new organism. These three machines we quickly discover correspond to the savage machine, barbaric despotic machine, and civilized capitalist machine, the three dominant world historical modes through which desiring production comes to be made to desire its own repression by means of coding, overcoding, and axiomatization. I will link. This is actually a really interesting article. I'm going to read through this a little bit later. We'll talk about it in the review tomorrow, but it's a really nice breakdown of that because... It is a lot of what they're talking about here, especially as they move towards the end of the paragraph we just finished. Uh, We're only two paragraphs in. Wonderful. Um, It is the force of projection that defines paranoia, the strength to start from zero to objectify a complete transformation. The subject leaps outside the intersections of alliance filiation, installs himself at the limit, at the horizon. Subject of a deterritorialized knowledge that links him directly to God and connects him to his people. For the first time, something has been withdrawn from life and from the earth that will make it possible to judge life and to survey the earth from above. A first principle of paranoiac knowledge. The whole relative play of alliances and filiations is carried to the absolute in this new alliance and this direct filiation. that last sentence is where is where it gets a little unclear to me so 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 they're talking about this new stage of society as a sort of what's the right word uh sort of uh like a pinnacle like a sort of fulfillment of what starts in in the sort of stage of society before the primitive society in the sense that the alliances and the direct filiation become what is it what's it the absolute is carried to the absolute. And I guess at the same time, that represents the sort of genealogical break while it also represents a kind of fulfillment. Well, it's a fulfillment of what is prefigured in the primitive society, right? Because um, um, the alliant and the affiliative are, are modified, right? They're overwritten in a sense. I, I mean, like in a literal overwriting way. Um and there's sort of, um, I don't know if I want to use the word re-territorialized, but they're, they're taken into this new society when someone places themselves through paranoia as the new limit of the society. And, and I want to say to Alyosha's point, too, with the, uh, the criticism of what I said, 
it, it kind of helps too to like uh, i think they're right to think about this in terms of like it's also could be like an empire responding to an empire or an empire being born out of a new one like the example of moses leaving egypt and starting something in the desert right so you've got egypt in the desert and and you've got um judaism qua moses if you like um springing up in relation to it in response to it rather so the aligned and affiliative get carried forward but also uh overridden and i'm just letting you know uh, i am continuing to record the video craig craig bot's been having a lot of issues we probably won't be able to get him back in here so i am still recording on my end so we're okay I mean, I guess the the thing I'm taking from this is just that that piece about for you know from the first time something has been withdrawn from life and make it it will make it possible to judge life and to survey the earth from above. So for whatever reason in this shift they see it, I guess it's the kind of I know I'm misusing this word, but like the kind of architectonic knowledge that is required to be able to map out you know territory and begin to deterritorialize things and create abstract quantities abstract i suppose citizens or subjects of this like state-like entity it happens at this point you know and what precedes it i don't remember the language they use but i imagine that whatever kind of knowledge they see in the primitive territorial machine must have to do with some kind of local or i don't know like relate they talk about the relationship with the earth i think uh, maybe someone can correct me on that well, no, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's the full body is the body of the earth versus the full body is the body of the despot, right? Where this paranoiac is going to come in and be like, I have the, I am like at once withdrawn from life because I have this, you know, sort of otherworldly intelligence. But at the same time, I'm going to make possible these sort of, this sort of subjecthood, this sort of state. It's a, I know everything. It's the, the paranoiac stepping in with paranoiac knowledge that I'm able to fill in all the blanks for you because God himself uh, has, has deigned me to know this. Uh, I'm going to continue reading the next paragraph because I think it, it's, it starts getting into a lot of this. And I think it's, in, any last points before I move on? All right. It remains to be said that, in order to understand the barbarian formation, it is necessary to relate it not to other formations in competition with it temporarily and temporally and spiritually, according to relationships that obscure the essential, but to the savage primitive formation that it supplants by imposing its own rule of law, but that continues to haunt it. It is exactly in this way that Marx defines Asiatic production. A higher unity of the state established itself on the foundations of the primitive rural communities, which keep their ownership of the soil, while the state becomes the true owner in conformity with the apparent objective movement that attributes the surplus product to the state, assigns the productive forces to it in the great projects undertaken, and makes it appear as the cause of the collective conditions of appropriation. The full body is so has ceased to be the earth. It has become the body of the despot, the despot himself, or his god. The prescriptions and prohibitions that often render him almost incapable of acting make him a body without organs. He is the sole quasi-cause. The source, the fountainhead, an estuary of the apparent objective movement. 
in places of mobile detachments from the signifying chain, a detached object has jumped outside the chain. In place of the flow of selections, in place of flow selections, all the flows converge into a great river that constitutes the sovereign's consumption, a radical change of regimes in the fetish or the symbol. What counts is not the person of the sovereign, nor even his function, which can be limited. It is the social machine that has profoundly changed. In place of the territorial machine, there is the mega machine of the state, a functional pyramid that has the despot as is at its apex, an immobile motor, with the bureaucratic apparatus as its lateral surface and its transmission gear, and the villagers as at its base, serving as the working parts. The stocks form the object of an accumulation. The blocks of debt become an infinite relation in the form of the tribute. The entire surplus value of code is an object appropriation. This conversion crosses through all the syntheses. The synthesis of production with the hydraulic machine and the mining machine. The synthesis of inscription with the accounting machine, the writing machine, and the monument machine. And finally, the synthesis of consumption with the upkeep of the despot, his court, and the bureaucratic caste. Far from seeing in the state the principle of a territorialization that would inscribe people according to their residence, we should see in the principle of residence the effect of a movement of deterritorialization that divides the earth as an object and subjects men to the new imperial inscription, to the new full body, to the new socius. They come like fate. They appear as lightning appears, too terrible, too sudden. I mean, I think this is interesting. That sentence just there, the far from seeing the state as the principle of territorialization, it's actually, you know, this, the, the idea of residence is itself an effect of the movement of deterritorialization. Even just that is an interesting move, I think, because common sense would kind of attribute a sort of solidity to the cartography of a state that seems obvious because you're, you know, you're in it and you're an effect of it. But, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm still piecing through that thought, but that that actually makes sense to me. Um, as someone who's not very familiar with Marx's uh, critique or description of the Asiatic production, where is that and what is that in? It feels familiar, but not a thing I've read significantly. If there's anyone who knows Marx, please. Otherwise, I'm going to turn to Google. Um, I know that it's controversial within Marxism. That's basically all I know. <laughs> that seems to be the first thing that is on the Wikipedia page as well. <laughs> so how controversial it is. Great. I, I can't speak too much to what it is formally, but... Well, we call it Oriental like... Despotism. Yeah, that's going to go over well. Sorry. Go ahead, Jack. Oh, Sure. But it, it, it kind of speaks to what Alyosha was just reading, right? It's it's this kind of double vision between like the land and the the state owning the land, right? It, it's in the sense that the people in the rural communities keep producing on the farmland and that, but the state makes its primary concern with the ownership of that land, which is of course its own, but also the the appropriation of that production, because I think that is kind of the, the transcendent point they're trying to make is it's like it's like we're looking at the earth from the standpoint of the despot all the time right as though the despot sits above the earth it seems to be yes uh, that 
actually, I'm just rereading the little section on it in here after a little bit um, of Googling. I mean, the, the important line in here to me is uh, uh, the state makes it appear as the cause of the collective conditions of appropriation. That seems to be that's that's striking me as a higher unity of the state establishes itself on the foundations of the primitive rural communities, which keep their ownership of the soil while the state becomes the true owner in conformity with the apparent objective movement that attributes the surplus product to the state state de facto becoming the thing that all of this is done for. Uh, well, in sort of allowing the primitive territorial machine to exist there, they subsume and take sort of the meta machine, the the mega machine. They use the term mega machine. I almost feel like meta machine may be a better usage because it's about this larger machine that subsumes the smaller machines, at least in how they're talking about uh, the Asiatic production here with Marx. You know, I almost wonder now that I think about it in the chat earlier, I'd said they mentioned the Kafka story, the Great Wall of China. And just because I had time earlier today, I went and read it. It's just like 10 pages or less. And at the time, I felt that, well, I don't know, really know what I learned from that. <laughs> but in this discussion, I'm thinking about it. And it, I, I think I kind of understand why I reference it, because the story is written from the perspective of a worker who supposedly worked on the Great Wall of China when it was initially being built in retrospect and talking about why it was built and their experience coming from a small vi- village in the south of China. And there is this whole thing of kind of like the the state and who the emperor is and Peking, as it's written in the text, are this really nebulous thing that is they can't, they don't even know what it is or what it's for until they start being shipped out to start working, actually working on the wall and seeing all these different parts of the empire that they'd never seen before. But that they somehow, but like for you know, the character talks about how the for the people in the village even though for in many ways, I think this is the part that Deleuze and Guattari quote, that they, they don't even know who the emperor is, what dynasty it is, who's in charge and why they're in charge. There is this like monument in the town that points towards them and where they reside. So there's a, there's a sense that this thing has like asserted itself as the organizer of their universe, even as it's in a day-to-day sense, almost completely irrelevant because they, they have, they don't feel the effects of the Northern tribes coming to attack them. And, they live in this deep southern part of China. So anyway, I'm just thinking about that of like kind of what you were saying of the the way that the despot and in this section it asserts itself and assigns the productive forces to it and then makes it appear as the cause of the collective conditions. And all the, the I, I think I think that's I think that's the way that they're talking about this because in the previous two paragraphs when they've talked about his bureaucrats, the the perverts underneath him. Uh, wherever a despot and his army pass, doctors, priests, scribes, and officials are part of the procession because they're ultimately the ones who are left in order to speak on his behalf. And again, the proclamations, the concept of a proclamation is anathema to the primitive. But as part of this, it's, it's incredibly important because without that proclamation, those people have no power. And without that proclamation being seen as effectively the word of God, uh, the, the peasants, uh, the people who are doing the hard work have no, they have no interest in that. They have no affiliation with the emperor unless it's really laid out for them that actually, no, the emperor is your God. The king is your God. Uh, a, a farcical aquatic woman handing out swords is actually the way that we determine who runs the country. Sorry. I rewatched uh, Monty Python over the weekend. 
Yeah, and I, I think it's important too to look at what's going on too in terms of like what the state does, right? Um, and I think the passage that's really relevant here is the entire surplus value of code is an object of appropriation. So, right, like it's not just the actual production. The state is um, also working on the surplus value of code. They continue this conversion process through all the syntheses, the synthesis of production with the hydraulic machine and the mining machine, the synthesis of inscription with the accounting machine, writing machine, and the monument machine, and finally the synthesis of consumption with the upkeep of the despot, his court, and the bureaucratic caste. And I think a lot of what they're talking about when they talk about Marx, Marx's uh, look at Asiatic production, however troublesome the original text may be, I have no concept. Um, it seems to be how they're talking about this taking over the primitive system, that it wasn't just you know, a singular event that suddenly, bam, everything's done, that these things happen, this happens in one location. And then uh, the despot, uh, the religious figure, whatever it may be, spreads out and they begin lords who work for him slowly spread. I mean, that's effectively how despotism sort of transferred across the world. And that seems to be how they're talking about that move from primitive to despot happens. Uh, Is that bureaucratic caste going far and wide and speaking about uh, the new affiliations and new alliance that you have with the new son of God, if you will. Yeah, it's interesting that one of the things they're after is the surplus value of code, right? Because um, it's really interesting that they're going through on like the first synthesis that of production is, um, is now like being linked to the hydraulic and mining machines. And then synthesis, you start to get accounting and writing and monuments, right? So you get like new love, new, new technologies, if you like, new machines of inscription that, that serve, um, these powers, right? Because they're going to talk about how we start getting into the, the into the, uh, I don't want to call it the problem of money, but maybe that's the only thing to call it the problem of money. And then finally, with consumption as paying upkeep to the despot, right? And maintaining the bureaucratic caste. I'm going to go ahead and uh, read the next uh, paragraph. The death of the primitive system always comes from without. History is the history of contingencies and encounters. Like a cloud blown in from the desert, the conquerors are there. In some way that is incomprehensible to me, they have pushed right into the capital, although it is a long way from the frontier. At any rate, here they are. It seems that every morning there are more of them. Speech with the nomads is impossible. They do not know our own language. Uh, And actually, uh, Alyosha, that's from uh, Great Wall of China, I believe. Uh, but this death, this death that comes from without is also that which was rising from within. The general irreducibility of alliance to affiliation, the independence of the alliance groups, the way in which they serve as a conducting element for the political and economic relations, the system of primitive rankings, the mechanism of surplus value. All this already prefigured despotic formations and caste hierarchies. 
And how does one distinguish the way in which the primitive community remains on its guard with respect to its own institutions of chieftainship and exorcises or straitjackets the image of the possible despot whom it threatens to secrete from within, from the way in which it binds up the symbol, a symbol that has become a der- become derisory of a former despot who thrust himself upon the community from outside long ago? It is not always easy to know if one is considering a primitive community that is repressing an endogenous tendency or one that is regaining its cohesion as best it can after a terrible exogenous adventure. The game of alliances is ambiguous. Are we still on the side of the new alliance or already beyond it, having fallen back, as it were, into a this side of that is residual and transformed? Related question, what is the, what is the feudal system? We are only able to fix the precise moment of the imperial formation as that of the new exogenous alliance, not only in the place of former alliances, but in relation to them. So I, I think this is getting further to the point that, like, especially from a genealogical standpoint, right, the way this, um, the way primitive society has the territorial machine of um, the affiliative and the alliance does prefigure um, the despot and the parent um, setting themselves as the new paranoiac limit and sort of um, taking those those um, aspects of the territorial machine, those aspects of the memory, if you like, and the investments thereby and taking them into this next step of society where the despot becomes the limit. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. It comes right after that Nietzsche quote, too. So they're sort of getting at the process of genealogy in this paragraph. Yeah, I support that read. I do, too. There's some really good lines in this uh, paragraph as well that I really like. Any other thoughts before I move on to the next one? Uh, Can you hear me? Can't. Got my mic. Uh, I just wanted to mention that... uh, uh, you know, feudalism was a problem, and uh, to explain it and to explain the uh, relationships between that and the empires in the Middle East that happened before that, uh, which I think is this despotic machine. But the interesting thing is the only other place in the world where there was feudalism was Japan. And so a lot of work went into trying to understand feudalism in Japan and compare that to feudalism in Europe. And, and so part, uh, part of the, the thing with feudalism in Europe is it came out of a uh, dieback of population. So, you know, at the end of the Roman Empire, one of the reasons the Roman Empire ended was there was a precipitous dieback of the population in Europe. And, you know, several historians that I've listened to tapes about this, uh, they say that this is probably the most important historical fact determining, uh, you know, European civilization was that dieback. And, uh, and so anyway, I just wanted to mention that, 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 in in Marxian theory, uh, they were kind of assuming the European model, but the European model, it turned out, was an anomaly, and the only other one that they could find was one in Japan. Just want to tack on to that. 
um, for for reasons of uh, economic clarity, uh, feudalism is not capitalism. I'm not saying Ken said that, but just to make sure we're clear, like we haven't made it to capitalism yet in either the despot or the the feudal systems. No, at this point, we're basically moving into the despotic, uh, which is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, only sort of part two of a three-part series of the different uh, issues. All right, uh, I'm going to continue moving on then. I believe we're on this new alliance. (laughs) This new alliance is something altogether different from a treaty or a contract. What is suppressed is not the former regime of lateral alliances and extended filiations, but merely their determining character. They subsist, more or less modified, more or less harnessed by the great paranoiac, since they furnish the material of surplus value. In point of fact, that is what forms the specific character of Asiatic production. The octonous rural communities subsist. Autochthonous, sorry, autochthonous rural communities subsist and continue to produce, inscribe, and consume. In effect, they are the state's sole concern. The wheels of the territorial lineage machine subsist, but are no longer anything more than the working parts of the state machine. The objects, the organs, the persons, and the group retain at least a part of their intrinsic coding, but these coded flows of the former regime find themselves overcoded by the transcendent unity that appropriates surplus value. The old inscription remains, but is bricked over by, but is bricked over by and in the inscription of the state. God, I'm going to re-say that. Sorry. The old inscription remains, but is bricked over by and in the inscription of the state. The blocks subsist, but have become encasted and embedded bricks, having only a controlled mobility. The territorial alliances are not replaced, but are merely allied with the new alliance. The territorial affiliations are not replaced, but are merely affiliated with the direct affiliation. It is like an immense right of the firstborn over all affiliations, an immense right of the wedding night over all alliances. The affiliative stock becomes the object of an accumulation in the other affiliation, while the alliance debt becomes an infinite relation in the other alliance. It is the entire primitive system that finds itself mobilized, requisitioned by a superior power, subjugated by new exterior forces, put in the service of other ends. So true is it, said Nietzsche, that what is called the evolution of a thing is a succession of more or less profound, more or less mutually independent processes of subduing, plus the resistances they encounter, the attempts at transformation for the purpose of defense and reaction, and the results of successful counteractions. I mean, that, essentially that Nietzsche quote is the entire paragraph. <laughs> I don't, am I wrong on that? That seems like Nietzsche put it very well and simplistic, unless I'm misreading. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the Nietzsche quote explains what it looks like to watch the, the alliant um, go into relation with the new alliant and the affiliative go into relation with the despotic affiliative. Right, it's a series of things that are that aren't. They're not isolated, but they're unique, and yet their connections lay back into the the territorial uh, territoriality of it. 
And just to say what uh, Alyosha is saying in chat, uh, this helps explain the persistence of features within different systems and how village units, for example, continue to persist while being retooled for a new function. I think that's, uh, again, they're talking about a lot of breaking down between affiliative relations, but even at that point, it allows the primitive, as they talked about in the previous chapter, the primitive machine is able to continue to function inside of the different villages or areas as it did in the Asiatic production Marx talked about. But that can all be subsumed by this larger meta machine that is the state that's able to repurpose why it's being done and what ultimately that's all being done for. That's it's a slow bit uh, that is bricked over by and in the inscription of the state, but the old inscription remains. I like that sort of visual. Yeah, and I think that's right because it's not like an empire gets rid of everything that came before, right? It carries the stuff forward even though it changes. Um, I just wanted to point out what I thought was one of the more important sentences. Um, affiliative stock becomes the object of an accumulation in the other affiliation, while the alliance debt becomes an infinite, excuse me, becomes an infinite relation in the other alliance. Right, so you can see how like there's this polarity between the um, between the primitive and the despotic, where the despotic set, sets itself up, especially as it's paranoiac, in counter-relation to the um, the primitive, but in doing so, it also extends debt at this kind of an infinite quality, while also taking um, taking the affiliative stock into an accumulation uh, within the new affiliation. Right, kind of like it goes to Brut's point about like there's this aspect of the of things getting subsumed, but you also have the the economic and politicality of it um, going on. Uh, toward like a level of infinity, right? Uh, with the only limit being that of the despot. Yep. Yep. Although, as we saw, right, Caesar can be killed. <laughs> I think that that this assumes that. It ultimately, again, it's about the machine of the state and how it handles those affiliative alliances between the, uh, and they use the word autochthonous throughout this. And I really, they make a very hard point uh, that uh, what ultimately is subsumed is that they're, they're the aboriginal, uh, the, the, the savage, whatever term they want to use, they, the aboriginal people that have no history of colonization, that they are directly subsumed by this process and how that happens. And I think we're able to very much go throughout history and find uh, a lot of times where that's the case, where even we still have today uh, Aboriginal peoples who are still, you know, living in some some system that's related to that, but are uh, subsumed in their own ways. And they talk about that's I mean, that's the, the Nietzschean line at the very end of succession, more or less propound, more or less mutually independent processes of subduing, press the resistances they encounter at all the different things that allow the, some system of the original primitive to continue, but definitely also changes how the despotic interacts with them. All right. Uh, I'm going to continue reading unless someone else has another point or wants to do the reading. No. I'll, I'll volunteer if no one else would like to. All right, go for it. 
Okay. It has often been remarked that the state commences or recommences with two fundamental acts, one of which is said to be an act of territoriality through the fitzing of residence, and the other, an act of liberation through the the abolition of small debts. But the state operates by means of euphemisms. The pseudo-territoriality is the product of an effective deterritorialization that substitutes abstract signs for the signs of the earth, and that, may, that makes the earth itself into the, sub, the object of a state ownership of property or an ownership held by the state's richest servants and officials. There is no great change from this point of view when the state no longer does anything more than guarantee the private property of a ruling class that becomes distinct from the state. The abolition of debts, when it takes place, is a means of maintaining the distribution of land and a means of preventing the entry on stage of a new territorial machine, possibly revolutionary and capable of raising and dealing with agrarian problem in a comprehensive way. In other cases where redistribution occurs, the cycle of credits is maintained and the new form established by the state money. For without question, money does not begin by serving the needs of commerce, or at least it has no autonomous mercantile model. The despotic machine holds the following in common with the primitive machine. It confirms the latter in this respect. The dread of decoded flows, the flows of production, but also mercantile flows, floods mechans of exchange and commerce that might escape the state monopoly with its tight restrictions and its plugging of flows. I'll try. When Etienne Balaz asked why capitalism wasn't born in China in the 13th century, when all the necessary scientific and technical conditions nevertheless seem to be present, the answer lies in the state, which closed the mines as soon as the reserves of metal were judged sufficient and which retained a monopoly or a narrow control over commerce, the merchant as functionary. Okay. Please, someone would love to jump in. Because this is uh, this is one of those paragraphs I did not find uh, very clear. I, I'll start by saying I really do like that they're pointing out that just because 13th century China looks like capitalism does today, doesn't mean it functions that way, right? So, like in terms of mercantilism, which is um, at least economically speaking, is the response to feudalism that does lead us into capitalism. It's, it's still a fair bit different, right? Because you don't have um, you don't have that same separation going on where um, merchants are starting to operate at the, at a level of autonomy and, and, and power is getting redistributed and ordained in a new way, right? So like the 13th century China is still allowing the state, or rather the state in 13th century China, is still controlling the alliance, right? It's still controlling the economic and political um, aspects of the territorial. I mean, again, I think what's great about this part is when, when they say the state operates by means of euphemisms, and then they say that they call it pseudo-territoriality. So like, I, I suppose traditional sociology or historiography might say, you know, this is where the state comes into being. It starts to 
you know, organize the land and create, you know, fixed residences, bureaucracies. You could look at the Chinese state, like, you know, the, the, the ancient uh, to medieval Chinese state famous for its like massive civil service and all these things. And you, know, you could say, well, this is look, it is, it's actually, it's creating a, a territoriality here. But I guess what they're saying is they, what looks it's, it's the apparent objective movement that they talked about way back with the socius and the BWO actually of, it, it appears to be, that appears to be what it's doing, but what it's actually doing, according to what they're saying, is it's cre- it's abstracting, you know, the, the uh, I guess, being or the subject, subjectivity away from the earth and creating this sort of separate register where the earth is a thing that is can be made into surplus value or is something that can be owned and organized in one way. And then there's, you know, subjects, on the other hand, that are somehow separate from it. And that is that's a form of deterritorialization, at least that's one form of it. So although it appears to be creating something solid, it, you know, the old Marx, all that is solid melts into air thing. You know, that's what I'm getting from that. Well, and to me, the, the big point they're really trying to push here is uh, the state creates money. Money is not necessarily there as we may know it today, where it's there for commerce for me to buy goods and things like that. But ultimately, it's about uh, the state's control of debt. To put it short, that feels like what they're trying to communicate. Yeah, if, if folks have a chance, you can take a look. It reminded me of this bit from early on in David Graeber's debt first 5,000 years, where he talks about the consortium of English bankers that made a loan of over a million pounds to the king to receive a royal monopoly on the issuance of banknotes. And he kind of goes into why this, this creates this infinite debt cycle. Well, to, I'll, just, I'll just go ahead and read this, this, this section because it's worth for the people who are, aren't going to be looking. Uh, what this meant in practice was they had the right to advance IOUs for a portion of the money the king now owed them to any inhabitant of the kingdom willing to borrow from them or willing to deposit it, their own money in the bank. In effect, to circulate or monetize the newly created royal debt. This was a great deal for the bankers. They got to charge the king 8% annual interest for the original loan and simultaneously charge interest on the same money to the clients who borrowed it. But this only worked as long as the original loan remained outstanding. To this day, the loan has never been paid back. It cannot be. If it ever were, the entire monetary system of Great Britain would cease to exist. So in one of those moments of the book, I will remember. It's a really excellent book, by the way. Graber's Debt. Excellent. Book. Yeah. yeah, and you can see the exclusivity there, right? Where like, even though debt has this infinite quality, it's all within this um this territoriality, right? So like, um, I, I if you want to, I don't know too much about the UK, but if if I think back to Judaism. Um, in, in regards to this territoriality, right? Like you have the year of Jubilee where debt is um, wiped away every 50 years. But I, I think the major point that you and Alyosha are making is that um, in wiping away that debt, this only affirms the process of debt, right? So like when I think about Richard Wolff, who talks about like the year of Jubilee and that, which is why I bring this up, is there does seem to be like an implicit connection with a discourse Marxism is having today, um, even though it does serve to um, counterbalance debt, it does so within the affirmation of debt, right? This is why the state speaks in euphemisms. 
Glenn, I'm going to go ahead and actually just dive right into the next uh, paragraph because um, I think it's a long one. And so I may uh, I may get to a point where I take a break. It's an awkward one. It's not it's whatever. Um, the role of money in commerce hinges less on commerce itself than on its control by the state. Commerce's relationship with money is synthetic, not analytical. And money is fundamentally inseparable, not from commerce, but from taxes as the maintenance of the apparatus of the state. Even where dominant classes set themselves apart from this apparatus and make use of it for the benefit of private property, the despotic tie between money and taxes remains visible. Basing himself on the research of Edouard Mill, Michael Foucault, Michel Foucault shows how, in certain Greek tyrannies, the tax on aristocrats and the distribution of money to the poor are a means of bringing the money back to the rich and means of remarkably and a means of remarkably widening the regime of debts, making it even stronger by anticipating and repressing any re-territorialization that might be produced by the economic givens of the agrarian problem. I know I wasn't reading ahead enough, so I said Michael instead of realizing who I was talking about. As if the Greeks had discovered in their own way what the Americans rediscovered after the New Deal, that heavy taxes are good for business. In a word, money, the circulation of money, is the means for rendering the debt infinite. And that is what is concealed in the two acts of the state. The residents or territoriality of the state inaugurate the great movement of deterritorialization that subordinates all the primitive filiations to the despotic machine, the agrarian problem. The abolition of debts or their accountable transformation initiates the duty of an interminable service to the state that subordinates all the primitive alliances to itself, the problem of debts. The infinite creditor and infinite credit have replaced the blocks of mobile and finite debts. There is always a monotheism on the horizon of despotism. The debt becomes a debt of existence, a debt of the existence of the subjects themselves. A time will come when the creditor has not yet lent, while the debtor never quits repaying. For repaying is a duty, but lending is an option. As in Lewis Carroll's song, the long song about the infinite debt, a man may surely claim his dues, but when there's money to be lent, a man must be allowed to choose such times as are convenient. Now I'm with you, actually, although Alyosha, everything, now that I'm, you've brought Graber in, it's in my head, I'm like, this feels like he's read this a lot. There's a great uh, series I can link online of back and forth. Uh, it was like a symposium on David Graeber's debt, like on Crooked Timber. And they, they engage a lot of these themes and there's some critiques as well, because I think that there's a lot to critique in that book. But just some of the basic premises I, I do think is quite valuable for this discussion. You know, I, I want to point out to this sentence, the infinite creditor and infinite credit have replaced the blocks of mobile and finite debts. One thing that, that, that speaks to for me is like, and, and this kind of goes back to that, like, kind of like polarity between the, um, the, the savage machine and the, the despot machine is that instead of dealing with debtors and like, you know, the, the person, um, having to deal with what they've borrowed. We're now dealing with the creditors, the people who give, who, who do the borrowing. 
And I see that as more directly um, indicative of what this new alliance is, right? The, what money um, does here is it's not socius yet, but rather what it what it seems to um, do here is that it ties back to the taxation that that all flows right back to the despot themselves. So in that way, right, like, and because it flows back to the despot, so too does it flow back to like the bureaucracy and like the the aristocrats thereby, right? So that at, at that level we're starting to see this, this sort of like um, the privileging that comes with the, the new Alliance system, the distribution of power going more to those people who have this political um, horizontal relationship with the despot and thereby um, the money is flowing back to them through taxes. And therefore it's, it's in relation to the despot as socius. And for anyone who's a Foucault fan, I would love to know where he has this conversation about Greek tyrannies and taxes on aristocrats. I'd love to uh, understand that. It sounds like from Luce. So I was looking because it says in the footnotes, 1971, but obviously these are published in different kind of collections in English. I, I narrowed it down to either the will to know or penal theories and institutions, but it seems like Luce saying, uh, it references the will to knowledge, which sounds like the will to know. So that must be the collection that it's in. Yeah, to know is right. Mm-hmm. Well, to know it is. All right, uh, I'll continue on. The despotic state, such as it appears in the purest conditions of Asiatic production, has two correlative aspects. On the one hand, it replaces the territorial machine. It forms a new deterritorialized full body. On the other hand, it maintains the old territorialities, integrates them as parts or organs of production in the new machine. It is perfected all at once because it functions on the basis of dispersed rural communities, which are like pre-existing autonomous or semi-autonomous machines from the viewpoint of production. But from the same viewpoint, it reacts on them in producing the conditions for major work projects that exceed the capacities of the separate communities. What is produced on the body of the despot is a connective synthesis of the old alliances with the new, and a disjunctive synthesis that entails an overflowing of the old filiations into the direct filiation, gathering all the subjects into a new machine. The essential action of the state, therefore, is the creation of a second inscription by which the new full body, immobile, monumental, immutable, appropriates all the forces and agents of production. But this inscription of the state allows the old territorial inscription to subsist as bricks on the new surface. And finally, from this appropriation, there results the way in which the conjunction of the two parts is implemented and the respective portions are distributed to the higher proprietary unity and to the propertied communities, to the overcoding process and to the intrinsic codes, to the appropriated surplus value and to the use of... All right, usufruct put into use to the state machine and to the territorial machine. As in Kafka's The Great Wall of China, the state is the transcendent higher unity that integrates relatively isolated subaggregates functioning separately to which it assigns a development in bricks and a labor of construction by fragments, scattered partial objects hanging on the body without organs. 
No one has equaled Kafka in demonstrating that the law had nothing to do with a natural, harmonious, and imminent totality, but that it acted as an imminent formal unity and reigned accordingly over pieces and fragments, the wall and the tower. Hence, the state is not primeval. It is an origin or an abstraction. It is the original abstract essence that is not to be confused with the beginning. We think only about the emperor, but not about the present one. Or rather, we would think about the present one if we knew who he was or knew anything about him. The people do not know what emperor is reigning. There exist doubts regarding even the name of the dynasty. Long dead emperors are set on the throne in our village. And one that only lives in song recently had a proclamation of his read out by the priest before the altar. Uh, I'd just like to say that, uh, you know, this is uh, how Kafka is representing... uh, you know, the emperor, but actually everyone knew the name of the emperor, for instance, in China, because they would avoid the characters in his name. And so they would have to know what those characters were to avoid them. And that's how they they date things, Chinese dollars, the, the, the substitution of other characters for characters that would overlap with the emperor's name. Right. I, I think... And I and I think uh, I haven't read uh, Great Wall in a, in a long time, um, but I think a lot of what I mean, Kafka was obviously not a historian in this sense, but it was very much about sort of how these disparate parts uh, were brought together to become part of a whole, even though they had no concept of what others were doing, what they were doing, or how it fit into a larger piece of anything. Um, the the sort of uh, discordant nature of the construction of the Great Wall, as it did happen, is that none of no one really knew what they were working on until it got there. And by the time they got there, the piece that they were building, they still weren't from their place effectively small on the ground, which is the phrasing that I think is used a lot inside of the writing. Uh, their place on the ground, they can't see the sky view, which is what the emperor's job is. The emperor's job is to say how this works, where it goes, how it laid out he's the one who has the god's eye view of all of china and knows what's needed i am just the peasant and i'm moving this rock and i need to be told how this rock affects everything and i think their point here is less uh that they don't necessarily know the emperor but that the emperor is so deeply disconnected from the peasant directly that like he doesn't know the peasant's name the peasant may not concern himself significantly with who the emperor is at any time the current emperor may not be a direct deity in the same way that past ones are and i think that's the connection they're making is that there's just such a discordant existence between the dynasty and between the people it rules it's, it's a deep abstraction. It's not something that the people deal with, I think. Alyosha, you just read it. Uh, yeah, I think you're mostly right. And I think probably the other reason that I, I realized I didn't explain about the story is that he goes into this great detail about the character, about how uh, the the workers themselves who just do the kind of everyday stuff, they're indiscriminately brought in and about from anywhere but there's like a class of i don't know not middle management it's like lower than that but the kind of the planners the just the masons and the engineers who have to oversee the individual sections 
who there's this whole like theory in the statecraft that they can't just send them out to the wilderness and have them build a wall for five years and get depressed and lonely, but that they like that the wall is, it's not built in, in continuous line. It's built in fragments and they're brought to a fragment that is nearing completion or is that it's about to be complete and they can see it finished and be congratulated for it and then move to another portion. The point is that it, it, I think it matches what Deleuze and Guattari are saying uh, about the, the, you know, the ruling over all these aggregates again, because it's not done in any kind of coherent you know, total way. It's done in a million different spots until those spots are eventually joined together. Um, and I don't know all the details, but I do know historically that there was at least, you know, it took a very long time to build and there were huge, huge gaps in it for very long periods of time. So I think that might actually line up historically. I wanted to read a quick sentence because I, I think too that there's the the position of the emperor might be um at least I'm thinking about it a little differently. So they write, as in Kafka is the Great Wall of China, the state is the transcendent higher unity that integrates relatively isolated subaggregates, functioning separately, to which it assigns a development in Brits and a labor of construction by fragments. Scattered partial objects hanging on the body of that organ. So, like, part of the way I'm reading this is like, there is this like fragmentary nature here, but the state um, is also providing a means of unity, right? Because fragments suggest belonging to some kind of um, whole, right? So, like, a, a complete text or a complete collection of texts, what have you. And, and that fragmentation appears to be in relation to the state right so this is this is um seems to be a compounding in some ways of how the socius does provide this kind of um or rather the state excuse me the state in this territorial representation does provide a unification but it's also the fragmentary nature that we're seeing so there is a kind of there is a kind of intimacy here as i'm reading it I, I think there is. And I think that to me, a lot of what they're getting at uh, overall when they're talking about the move from the primitive to the despotic is, uh, I mean, how we talk about how people handle their labor and what the point of it is. And it may be a bit on the noble savage side, but when they talk about, you know, the, the earnings of a tribe or the affiliation or the family and what you kind of do uh, with your labor throughout all of it, they went in depth about how, you know, you're going out, you're hunting, you're taking care of, you've got your group and everyone very much is able to see the impact of their work. And we're starting to get far more into the place of alienation from our labor and understanding all of that. At least it's uh, maybe a lens I'm seeing it through because it's the... Uh, it feels like they're pointing that direction. All right. Well, I'm going to read, uh, unless anyone wants to read the last paragraph, I'm going to go ahead and finish us off and we'll have a short chat and then we'll move, uh, we'll be done and we can get the review going tomorrow. Uh, all right. As for the sub-aggregates themselves, the primitive territorial machines, they are the concrete itself, the concrete base and beginning. But their segments here enter into relationships corresponding to the essence. They assume precisely this form of bricks that ensures their integration into the higher unity and their distributive operation consonant with the great collective designs of the same unity 
major work projects, extortion of surplus value, tributes, generalized servitude. Two inscriptions coexist in the imperial formation and mutually adjust insofar as one is imbricated into the other. But the new inscription cements the whole and brings producers and products into relations with itself. They do not need to speak the same language. The imperial inscription countersects all the alliances in filiation, prolongs them, makes them converge into the direct filiation of the despot with the deity, and the new alliance of the despot with the people. All the coded flows of the primitive machine are now forced into a bottleneck, where the despotic machine overcodes them. Overcoding is the operation that constitutes the essence of the state, and that measures both its continuity and its break with the previous formations. The dread of flows of desire that would resist coding, but also the establishment of a new inscription that overcodes, and that makes desire into the property of the sovereign, even though he be the death instinct himself. The death instinct itself. The castes are inseparable from this overcoding and imply the existence of dominant classes that do not yet manifest themselves as classes, but are merged with the state apparatus. Who is able to touch the full body of the sovereign? Here we have a problem of castes. It is overcoding that impoverishes the earth for the benefit of the deterritorialized full body, and that on this full body renders the movement of debt infinite. It is a measure of Nietzsche's force to have stressed the importance of such a movement that begins with the founders of states, these artists with the look of bronze creating an oppressive and remorseless machine, erecting before any perspective of liberation an ironclad impossibility. This infinitivation cannot be understood exactly as Nietzsche would have put it. That is, as a consequence of the interplay of ancestors, profound genealogies, and extended filiations. Rather, when these are short-circuited, abducted by the new alliance and direct filiation, then the ancestor, the master of the mobile and finite blocks, finds himself dismissed by the deity, the immobile organizer of the bricks in their infinite circuit. I have a big question around that last section, and I'm going to just ask, uh, what what did they mean by uh, it's uh, Nietzsche would have it? It's not understood exactly as he says it, uh, which is the simple movement, profound genealogies and extrapolations. Rather, when these are short circuited, abducted by the new alliance and direct filiation, then the ancestor, the ancestor they call the master of the mobile and finite blocks. Uh, would that be the nomad nomadology, mobile and finite blocks? I'm trying to understand this last two sentences. It's un- this is not fun. Well, I think one thing that should be remembered is that if you if you look back at uh, Sumer, uh, there's this really interesting thing, which that was that uh, you know Ur and uh, the other cities there were the first cities. And uh, and so people were living in groups of about 120. And then, like, overnight, they, they established cities of 40,000. And those cities didn't have any walls around them, didn't have any palaces. The only thing that they had were temples to the god. And so in those temples, the... Um, you know the gods were like mannequins that were fed and clothed and taken on uh, 
taken on rides to visit each other at their separate temples and things like that. So, you know, I think that that image of the body without organs, you know, can apply to those those uh, those mannequins that were the gods were worshipped. And the idea was that everyone was serving the gods. And so, uh, and that was the way to gain efficiency in mass, uh, large-scale agriculture. So I, I took a stab at it in Chad Brooks. Um, the way I, the, what I was kind of getting from this is like, where they write this so-called infinitivation cannot be understood exactly as Nietzsche would have it. That is as a consequence of the interplay of ancestors, profound genealogies, and extended affiliations. So, right, it looks like the first part of this this uh, complex sentence is that Nietzsche understands the infinitivation as arising from the interplay of ancestors, profound genealogies, and extended affiliations. But instead, it looks like when those are short-circuited, so they're already there, right? That seems to be where they they sort of agree. While those things are already there, when they short-circuit and are abducted by the new alliance and direct filiation, so like you've got like the re-territorializing happening, or like the overcoating more so, then the ancestor, the master of the mobile and finite blots, finds himself dismissed by the deity, the immobile organizer of the bricks and of their infinite circuit. So it's like the infinitude takes away the um, the ancestor, right? So like the despot and like the um, the infinitude uh, overlay upon and sort of like um, perhaps truncate the ancestor that was um, previously there. So it looks more like it's a, a replacing overriding factor than it is like um, the, the, the causal relationship that Nietzsche was thinking. Uh, can you repeat that last part? What was the causal relationship you were talking about? And and how is that not what uh, Deleuze and Guattari were talking about? So it looks like Nietzsche was thinking that the infinitivation comes from the uh, the interplay of ancestors, genealogies, and stem affiliations. But rather, it looks like the re-territorialization takes that interplay, short-circuits it, and leads to the the ancestors, so like the the previous territoriality, getting dismissed by the deity, uh, or or the despot, if you like, right? Like, um, getting dismissed by the deity, the uh, quote immobile organizer of the Brits and of their infinite circuit. So okay, it's almost like they're saying like Nietzsche. We disagree with Nietzsche because we think it's a re-territorializing. I think that might be the simplest way to say it. But I'm open to criticism of my reading. I don't know about the word re-territorialization, but I, I think I agree with you that like Nietzsche has a way of characterizing uh, that like event as if it was like uh, these like random people all of a sudden got together and made a state happen, right? But it definitely their reading is definitely distinct from that, where this sort of like well. I'm losing my train of thought. Uh, I guess the only reason I wouldn't really, I'm careful with the word re-territorialization is because they were using deterritorialization to describe, I think, a similar process earlier. And so it's tough because sometimes 
those two processes are going like hand in hand in this book. <laughs> yeah, and that's fair then. So to, to amend what I said, we can say that the, the change that seems to be happening um, is that there's an extension going, there's an extension of the previous um, uh, territoriality, right? The previous um, primitive system of uh, the affiliative and alliant that's going into this infinitude, but it's um, it's it's based around I think the ancestor being replaced by the deity, and, and therefore the ancestor is the master of the mobile finite block is being um, dismissed as being overridden, especially through power by the uh, by the deity or by the uh, more specifically by the um, despot and perhaps its perverts. Okay, so I'm going to try saying a different way, uh, and I because I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to disagree with anything you're saying uh, right now because I don't know if I fully grasp it. This is the problem. Um, to me, when they refer to blocks, they were they referred to blocks a lot, but they've only done it once they began using the allegory of the Great Wall as Kafka wrote it, which is literally about uh, small groups of people producing and placing blocks without knowing where they go, moving blocks, uh, all of that. The, so when they refer to uh, then the ancestor, they're talking about the uh, primitive machine that is uh, taking place in the aboriginal locations inside of China these tiny little towns uh, and that is where you make the blocks for the ancestor that's 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 what the blocks get produced for inside of those things the blocks would be a semblance of debt but by creation of the blocks you're doing it in a debt to the ancestor the master of the mobile and finite blocks they're able to be moved they're able to be changed around the mass the ancestors the reason you do those things however uh, inside these towns at this point and that is, uh, he's talking about sort of the narrator of the 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 book. And again, ten pages worth reading of the Great Wall, Kafka's Great Wall. Uh, I think he's talking about the narrator here going through and the the the, the mental break of I built these blocks uh, once upon a time. I would have built them, and it would have been to a shrine, or I would have built these blocks and built a house inside of the village. My ancestor would have determined because of my filial relations and alliances inside of the village that would have set it up. However, now the blocks are actually set by this new master and this this is the deity the immobile organizer of the bricks that uh, they the, they don't view the state or the the godson or the emperor as being uh, everywhere at once he's he's in, he's mo- immobile but from a god's eye perspective overseeing it and the blocks ultimately become uh, as they use the term infinite circuit i can't help but think that that is a reference to their ultimate use in this one large series of blocks and the debt that is interplayed between them on behalf uh, because they're laid out in a connective fashion throughout the wall. It feels like they're leaning at something a little bit more poetic than I was originally taking it when they talk about the blocks. Yeah, I I think Uh, I agree with you. Just to make one quick point, I I think too we, we would stress that in the previous system, the debt terminates. But the point here is that there's an infinitude that's coming into being. So like with your example, like I would, use, I would have built a house and I would have been over with. Now, because the state 
sort of sits above and owns the earth, or at least that transcendent aspect of the state makes it appear that the, the state owns the earth and therefore your property, right? Because that's part of the representation. That debt is never going to end, right? There's always going to be, uh, at least from a modern standpoint, there will always be property taxes. I was just going to say, uh, I pasted in an image of this in chat, and I think it could be helpful because this is from much earlier in the text, from page 40. I'm just going to read a piece of this. Um, they're, they're still in the throes of talking about desiring machines and the, the schizo, quote-unquote, here, but they, they explicitly use this language. So they say, how could, how could part of a flow be drawn off without a fragmentary detachment taking place within the code that comes to inform the flow? When we noted a moment ago that the schizo is at the very limits of the decoded flows of desire, we meant that he was at the very limit of the social codes where a despotic signifier destroys all the chains, linearizes them, bi-univocalizes them, and uses the bricks as so many immobile units the construction of an imperial great wall of China. But the schizo continually detaches them, continually works them loose, and carries them off in every direction in order to create a new polyvocity that is the code of desire. Um, every composition and also every decomposition uses mobile bricks as the basic unit. I'm skipping ahead here. These bricks or blocks are the essential parts of desiring machines from the point of view of the recording process. They are at once component parts and products of the process of decomposition that are spatially localized only at certain moments by contrast with the nervous system, which is a great chronogenous machine, uh, a melody producing machine of the music box type with a non-spatial localization. There's a lot to unpack there, but I find it useful. Jesus to, Christ, that's to fantastic. Where is that? I'm just going to stop you right that, now. That's page 40. Page 40. They have uh, an entire sorry, section sorry. on bricks. What the fuck, man? <laughs> this is early. This is in my Penguin edition, at least. Or sorry, no, that was in the PDF that I found. But um, it's very. I think it's really useful because, like they're saying here, so the bricks are essential parts of desire machines from the point of view recording process. Um, they talk explicitly here about how, you know, they're contrasting the immobile use of those bricks in that imperial organization, as they're calling it, with what the schizo schizophrenic supposedly does by carrying them off and pulling them in all these different directions so so if we, if we yes yeah. so i think if we if we pull back we go okay uh humans sit there we have a shit ton of desire pushing up desire flows are just existing uh the schizo who has no reference to any of this would just be taking bricks and going fucking everywhere and doing some crazy cool shit with them probably who knows but everywhere uh but what happens with the original uh, machine that the the primitive territorial machine uh, because of the affiliations because of who I'm born into how I'm born that determines where my bricks go and what they're used for and it's very direct it's things that I'm around and the energy from my bricks goes into that and uh, then what happens is someone comes and says, actually, no, uh, you're, you were born this way and you may be a brick maker, but now you make bricks for Steve because Steve is the son of God and you don't really doesn't matter to you, but now you're making bricks and you're putting them over there. Fucking Steve, dude, Steve sucks. Um, and he's, he's all over the place, but, uh, so it's, what we're talking about is the slow coding of those original flows. And because uh, I'm reading through, and it is page 40 in my version, but it, it feels like that's, this is literally what I had such a hard time with this earlier. I'm going to have to go back and reread this. Well, I'll reread this for tomorrow. It's really spot on, but it's talking through the flows basically being coded into bricks and what we do with those bricks in a lot of different ways, which is directly what they're talking about in this section, actually. 
one-to-one, not even an allegory. Like they're one-to-one talking about the same fucking thing. Yeah, I mean, Muskie's right when he said, they said that they, damn, they planned that far ahead because it's clear that they're using the same analogy. They're probably thinking of Kafka here, but I think we could probably think of the bricks as well as kind of in that discussion of the whole, you know, breaking the signifier signified thing of like, this is like signification without meaning or purpose necessarily. The bricks are produced, they're endlessly produced. And in different regimes, they get ordered and used for different reasons. I thought one thing that was useful in this section as well is that they, in, in the one we just read in our current section, they describe the organizer as the immobile organizer. But actually in this one too, they also say the bricks as so many immobile units for the construction of an imperial great wall. And I think that's interesting too, because it kind of brings the image of they're organized into this structure, this other thing, and they're placed, they're, they're supposed to be given a fixed meaning. So it, it kind of evokes that signifier signified thing. It, it appears to have a clear articulation of what it's for. And it has every brick has its place in this wall. It's a specific spot that has been ordained by this process. Whereas, you know, the schizo supposedly, you know, removing them and moving them in all other directions kind of reveals the fact of, well, they're not actually immobile. You know that they they don't they're not that's not their nature to be that way. They've just been organized that way. I guess is what I'm getting at. I really like that. Uh, and uh, just because I want to quote Muskie in the chat, uh, basically yes, the rule is I finished reading Anti Oedipus. Guess it's time to read Anti Oedipus. <laughs> that's how it feels, and it's maybe even worse than that. Hey, I finished reading a section of Anti Oedipus. I better start over every fucking time I read a new section. Just start at the beginning. It becomes a recursive book constantly. Um, I think with that though, I am gonna call the day and uh, say thank you guys very much for joining us for this read through today. Same bat time, same bat channel. We tomorrow we'll have uh, our review, and I'm gonna read through that section. And uh, please uh, toss your follow up questions in the chat above. Uh, I'm gonna probably get this on YouTube and out tonight, uh, and maybe edit it a little bit down. So we'll see. But thank you guys very much. This was good shit.